we figured we'd have a good conversation with two real doctors to separate fact from fiction. Uh, first doctor we have the pleasure of having today is Dr. Hamali Patel, and she is based in San Francisco, and she's board certified practicing internal medicine physician and clinical design lead for chronic care management and remote patient monitoring at One Medical. She's on staff and works as a hospitalist at California Pacific Medical Center at Stanford University, where she was previously a clinical instructor. Uh, Dr. Patel speaks frequently on lifestyle medicine and population health topics to empower and educate individuals using the latest advances in health and wellness, which I love because uh, I do believe that exercise and eating right uh, cures over 90% of things out there, but that's just me, of course. So uh, first, uh, Dr. Molly, I'm just going to leave it to you before we get to this other guy, Dr. Levine, with the same last name, <laughs> uh, and just have you give an overview of what you've seen initially, what you see now, and where you see this going. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. This is a fun talk that I'm excited to give because, as you said, Craig, there are lots of um, lots of fiction around COVID, and it's always good to kind of just inform and, and educate based on what we know. Um, I practice in internal medicine and outpatient and also inpatient. So when COVID first uh, got underway in the Bay Area, obviously very scary, and um, we were still going into the office. Um, and we quickly ramped up into a fully remote um, clinic for a short amount of time until we had correct PPP or PPE. Um, and patients were, you know, we were getting lots of calls, obviously, from patients wanting to know how long this thing was going to last and know oh, this is only going to be a couple of months. And obviously, a full year later, uh, we're still in it. Um, but it's been incredible in the way that the medical community has come together in terms of sharing resources, sharing information, um, sharing treatment in the hospital. Um, we were very quick to adapt uh, protocols to allow patients um, to safely come in for whatever condition they had. Obviously, I think everybody saw that there was a decrease in hospitalizations overall, um, which was a little unusual. Um, uh, but, um, you know, in terms of uh, physician wellness, physician fatigue, that was obviously a big concern um, and still is a big concern. I think now with the second wave and seeing patients come in um, with this like post-COVID syndrome um, discussions around when they can get the vaccine and how they're feeling about getting the vaccine is something that we really want to address, especially as um these new variants are coming out and, and really dispelling a lot of the myths around why one shouldn't get the vaccine um, and giving the details in terms of what we know. So in the Bay Area, uh, at least, uh, rollout for vaccines has kind of been, was uh, a little slow to start. And I think that as mass vaccination sites are ramping up, um, that should hopefully improve. But I think that if we can start to, and we were at least able to, at least in San Francisco, um, vaccinate uh, healthcare workers and first responders, and we're continuing to roll that out. And so slowly moving along in the tiers, obviously distribution's a bit uneven, um, but trying to get the workings, but really to have patients and people just the population in general understand the importance of vaccine um, and the importance of vaccinations and why we are, um, uh, why we're pushing a lot of this right now. 
Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate that. You know, and we'll get into obviously a lot of Q and A about the vaccine uh, shortly. Uh, Dr. Brian Levine, uh, I happen to know him very well. Uh, he's also known as my brother. Uh, Brian graduated the uh, University of Vermont, completed emergency medical training in 1998, uh, probably prior to a lot of people when they were born. I was the, he was the program director for uh, emergency medicine residency for seven years at Christiana Care uh, System in Delaware. It's a large referral teaching tertiary care center in Northern Delaware. Uh, two years ago, Brian transitioned into the Dean's office per se and oversees graduate medical education and undergraduate medical education along with simulation lab and transport team. Brian still sees patients in the emergency department weekly and teaches residents and student. Um, I knew Brian uh, was going to be a good doctor when I asked him about a uh, when I had when I get the flu, and I said uh, to Brian, "If I take uh, medication, how long will the flu last?" He said, seven days." And then what? And I said, "I asked if I don't take medication, how long will it last?" He said, "A week." So with that, I leave it to Brian uh, to give an overview again, uh, just like Dr. Patel of where we were, where we are, and where you see us going with COVID. Yep, thanks, uh, Craig. I've known you for a long time. You're just like a brother, similar mothers. But um, <laughs> now I like doing these things and it's enjoyable. So I uh, came down to Delaware and everyone always asks, why did you leave New York to come to Delaware? <laughs> and um, it really is uh, the best of a lot of worlds here in small little Delaware we have the largest healthcare center between Philadelphia and Baltimore, the only level one trauma center. We cover the whole state, which is very cool. And uh, so our medical schools in Philadelphia, it's Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson University and that, uh, or Jefferson Medical College. So we make up our own minds on everything and um, really are pretty independent while our med schools sort of off site. So it allows us to have our own protocols and do a lot of great things and take great care of people. But it also is a barometer for the population since we get the bulk of the patients uh, between two major cities and there's no real competition here. Um, our main hospital is 1100 beds. I mean, it's a, it's a big, large, you know, the mothership is big here and um, we uh, handle everything. So we are a nice barometer for the whole state. So um, anyway, I um, still do uh, emergency medicine, as Craig said. I love seeing patients, um, but it is physically and emotionally taxing to do every day. So I'm very lucky that I get to do it one weekend a month and then one day during the week and I get to train and on the others, you know, I have medical students and residents as well, which is very cool. So when this whole thing started, it was kind of weird and interesting because uh, I'm probably older than most of the people here now, I'm 50, but um, with H1N1 10 years ago, it felt very similar to the very beginning where we sort of, oh, we'll wear masks, just a whisk away in a couple of months. But as uh, Hamali mentioned, they're a year later now and things are just starting to feel a little bit better. I'll be honest with you. We've gone through waves and cycles just like you guys have. At the beginning, we were all nervous, especially as front care, uh, you know, frontline workers, healthcare workers, people who see patients. We were all scared that what if we get it? What if you're 40 and healthy? And we can talk about this a little bit as we go further. Why do some 30 and 40 year olds that I see come into the ED uh, with no medical problems, uh, near death sometimes on a ventilator? I've seen some of them die. And then I see an 80 year old 
uh, who loses their sense of smell if they get COVID and that's it and they're fine after it. So this, we've learned a ton over this past year and we'll talk about vaccines and social distancing and hand washing, et cetera. But there's a lot we don't know, which is sort of fascinating. I mean, when this thing first started, admit it, probably a lot of you washed your packages off, uh, you know, cleaned our surfaces like crazy. Uh, there's a lot of things that when you're nervous, you probably get a little accepted and conservative, which is totally fine. But a lot of it's not based on fact. And it's hard to get fact and things are moving quickly. Uh, people are dying. Everyone's afraid. There was little data. We treated this like the flu initially, which it definitely is not. Then other people treated it like other things like measles, which it definitely is not. And uh, it's fascinating watching the rollout of this vaccine and why our numbers are down so much now in February compared to these ebbs and flows, which we've had during the year. We, uh, during our peak, we hit 300 COVIDs uh, in our system, which is pretty high. Um, when that's, uh, we only have about uh, 1,500 beds, one in five are COVID, and a lot of those are really sick and a lot of resources. And the length of stay of a COVID patient is six days, as opposed to your average Joe coming into the hospital, they usually are out, of the, out in three days. So this taxed our system. But we saw several surges, and now we're at one of the lowest points since the beginning. We're under 100 in our system. Homily probably knows more about her area too, but we've seen great decreases and it's not from the vaccine, although that's definitely helped. It's a, com it's a variety of factors and we could talk about that too. So I'm excited to be here. There's a lot on our docket, I'm sure. We can uh, see if anybody wants to start putting things in the chat or uh, we can just sort of um, keep going forward as Craig throws some comments, but I'm glad to be here um, and we can start uh, firing the questions away, Craig, if you want. Yeah, one, one of the main questions, uh, obviously this group is very uh, commercial real estate specific. And a lot of the initial discussion was on HVAC, uh, MERV filters, airflow. Uh, so one of the questions that we have coming back to the offices uh, is cleanliness of the office, number one, and air quality, number two. Uh, I'll leave it to Dr. Patel as well. Uh, where you see these craziness, if you will, when somebody is suspected of having COVID, they rush, they clean everything uh, and go crazy with that. And then everyone wants to know about airflow and cleanliness. What have you seen and, and what, have your, what are your recommendations with regard to that? Yeah, I mean, when our offices, when it was you know, deemed safe to to come back, it was putting in HEPA filters and HVACs in the offices and making sure that they're at least safe for the provider to be in a room with a patient. Um, and I think the knowledge, the, the awareness around kind of filtration, air filtration is still coming out in terms of what is appropriate and what is optimal. Um, and then the cleanliness, you know, in the beginning, I think as, um, as Brian alluded to, is, is we're wiping down everything. I mean, even physicians, you don't really know what you're not supposed to wipe down what you are. So you're just kind of cleaning everything up. And I think like as um, social distancing applies and a mask wearing comes in, obviously you wanna make sure that things are sanitized and services are clean. Um, and social distancing really won't go away in, in the near future. I think that you're going to have to um, be careful about having people come back into work um, and wanting them to come back in the workplace. But there'll be scenarios where m many as half of the workers um, are coming into the office and it's it's more of a sparse, uh, D-density 
densification um, uh, rollout as, as people are coming back into the office. And they want to. I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen is that um, in the beginning with uh, working from home, it seems very exciting, but now you're seeing the mental effects of that. Um, people want to go back and meet with their colleagues. They want to have a break between work, life. It's affecting sleep. It's affecting um, productivity. And um, it's really an opportunity to redesign these workspaces in a way that can uh, accommodate for um, that social interaction and that social environment while keeping people safe. So I think, you know, maybe not wiping down boxes. And I think as rates continue to decline and community spread is low, people will become a little bit more relaxed, but there's still this hyper-awareness and making sure that, you know, hand-washing is always occurring and um, people are just learned about, um, about how they are actually using appropriate hygiene. Yeah, I don't know if you want to touch on that, Brian, but uh, Dr. Patel pretty much nailed it uh, on that one. Um, we're getting a ton of, uh, obviously, questions I'm not shocked because again, it goes back to the internet thing. You could find any answer you want, whether it's the right one, I don't know. Uh, I'll pick a few here. If you had uh, COVID, are you immune? If not, if so, for how long? Yeah, I'll start and then uh, Amelie can add to it, I'm sure. But um, if you've had COVID, you are immune to that strain of COVID and most likely other strains. There, uh, I don't want to get too crazy, but well, let's just talk about it. Um, once you get infected, your body creates uh, memory cells that will um, notice that protein or bug when it infects you the next time. And um, generally, it depends on the type of response you get to how long your immunity is. Most immunity, it's variable depending on um, how much change there is in the virus itself, including mutations, which all organisms do. But if you look at a rapidly mutating virus like flu, for us to stay ahead of it, we need to do boosters every year. And that's sort of the theory that people are leaning to now, as we've noticed, there are hundreds of variants of this, several of which are clinically significant, where they can uh, maybe start eluding the immune system a little bit. But right now, uh, it looks like you have at least six months of antibody response and clinical immunity, and most people think it may be a year or two. Um, but uh, given that it's not forever, like the measles, which never, which doesn't mutate like this, um, they'll probably will need to be boosters. So uh, time will tell. But I would say that right now the latest data is six months, most likely, because that's when we started studying it. But Amelie, any comment? Yeah, I think, well, so the data, it's it's coming out. There was a recent thing just even over the weekend that we are seeing reinfection um, to COVID and it could be a different strain. And as they're, um, as they're sequencing out these strains, it's, it's unclear if you had COVID in the beginning of last year and you got it again, are you getting the UK variant that we know is in, in the US now? And so they will recommend um, for patients to get vaccinated, but maybe there's discussion about if you if you've had COVID within the night within the past 90 days i.e three months um, your likelihood for reinfection um, is probably very low after that those three months it can start to go down and, and your ability to get reinfected probably with a different strain um, is a little bit higher. And then the question is, should you get the vaccine if you've had that? Um, you probably have a little bit of a grace period within those 90 days, but post that, um, it's still recommended. There is discussion and there are research papers that are coming out um, 
uh, you know, discussing whether a one shot vaccine would be enough. Maybe you don't need both. Um, and so uh, there'll probably be more to come on that as more data is coming out. Yeah, the immune response from a single dose after having clinical COVID is really robust. So yeah. you may not need that second shot, which is yeah. very cool also. So but you're right, the variants are interesting. And we'll see what happens if the boost has to include some of those variants or what. This is still kind of cool because in a fascinating way, this is changing almost. You know, you just mentioned homily their papers from the weekend that we read. Right. That was, <laughs> this is kind of exciting. And I, you guys might think we're geeks or whatever, but it's kind of fun. Uh, it's, it's just happening uh, very quickly. So keep that in mind. Yeah, thank you. Now, uh, we don't think you're geeks. We know you're geeks. <laughs> as long as you know. Yeah. Or nerds is the coolest. Yeah. <laughs> One of the, uh, which is, uh, I thought this came out and was very uh, poignant, is from Shane. I'm interested on a personal level to hear the facts regarding pregnant women receiving the vaccine. Should they or shouldn't they? Um, data in pregnancy is uh, still ongoing. I mean, the trials are just getting underway in pregnant women and children. And so um, we know that pregnant women are at higher risk for severe disease. So it's not necessarily the higher risk of catching COVID, but they are at higher risk for having a more severe version of the illness. Um, and uh, there are a couple of the vaccines, um, the AstraZeneca one and the Novavax one that has a track record for um, being tested in pregnant women because the platform that they use for those vaccines were used for Ebola and for RSV. And so those vaccinations might make it um, a bit more uh, appetizing for a pregnant woman to want to take it. Um, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, we just don't know because it's new. It's a new way. Um, and while they're deemed um, safe, those trials are still ongoing. And so it's really a discussion. And I think having that discussion with your provider and having that individual discussion with the patient is going to be really important um, just because we, we don't know about those two. Um, and so I think that, and then I think for children, just while we're on the subject, um, they're at low risk for severe disease. And so uh, while they can contribute to an asymptomatic transmission, um, you know, it, it depending on how you feel and how strongly you feel about wanting your child to have that vaccine is kind of an individual personalized at the moment. I think the next couple of months we'll start seeing some data as we're, yeah. you know, pregnancy questions are slowly starting to be answered, but it looks like the, even the vector um, vaccines are probably going to be good for pregnancy as it is an individual choice. We have several hundred residents here of which like 10 or so are pregnant. They all elected to get the vaccine, mRNA, um, but that, you know, is not, uh, doesn't affect your genetic material and has a little different kind of sort of nanoparticle style thing. But um, it is a discussion with the physician. That's why people are not willing to give the answer because there probably isn't the exact answer. And that's- We don't um, know. <laughs> we don't know. And it's yeah. hard to say sometimes. Right. I don't like yeah. saying it. Humbling statement. We don't know. <laughs> I, I think uh, we've done these talks before, you know, me and obviously Brian, and, and I see with Dr. Patel as well. Uh, a lot of people are go to doctors because they think they know 100%. And- I think the best doctors like you two, when you say you don't know, it just, this thing is, this is so new and it's morphing all the time. It's okay to say you don't know, but we're obviously studying as things progress and things like that. So um, we appreciate that, especially. Well, 
Thanks. And just on that note, I mean, you know, physicians are also pregnant and they're taking these vaccines. And so we're all going through this in, in real time with you. We're taking the data, we're taking the facts, and we're trying to make our own personal decisions around um, what we feel comfortable with. And so um, I think that, you know, the humanity part of bringing it back down and we're all in this together. And so, you know, I've had the, those discussions with my colleagues who are pregnant um, or trying to get pregnant and, you know, do they get the vaccine or not? And, and it is really personal based on the risks that you know, which is why the facts and the education around it is so important. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And um, a couple of the questions, which, you know, we've talked, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. I have Brian, my family, I could text him at two in the morning. Uh, but one of the things that came up, and this is great from John, is are there things we can do personally take vitamins, exercise, get better sleep. Has that been shown as a somewhat of a natural defense to COVID or it's basically uh, in your DNA, whether you're more susceptible or, or not? Uh, I'll start, I guess, first. Um, you should always take care of yourself. We know that people that are run down, beat up, have, drink more, eat poorly, sleep less, have uh, decrease immune responses. Does it mean they'll get sick faster, quicker? Who knows? It's a, it's a multifactorial answer that there's a lot of things involved in your health. And some of it is genes. I will tell you, there's some reason, some reasons 30 and 40 year olds uh, die of this disease and other diseases or get diabetes, et cetera. Sometimes it's genetic or sometimes you don't exactly know. There's no real good data on vitamins, unfortunately. Vitamin D or zinc and those supplements have never been shown to be that helpful in these scenarios. Do I totally tell people to stop it? No, if I think they, if you think it helps, that's fine. Um, maybe you do have uh, low levels, et cetera, but the data just isn't as good as a lot of people think they are, at least when you test them in these studies. And so who knows? I don't really, um, I think the answer is multifactorial. And there's a lot of reasons why some people get sick and some people don't, but you gotta take care of yourself. And I will tell you, physicians are as guilty as everybody. Um, they sometimes don't sleep, they uh, get it there probably have difficulty sleeping, they're anxious, and uh, are as uh, fall into the same category as everybody else. So uh, that's my two cents, Molly. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the studies are kind of mixed in terms of, and they're so small right now, and you're taking them in hospitalized patients, and it's hard to kind of randomize patients outside um, in terms of taking vitamin C and zinc. And so when you look at, when you're pulling two studies together, um, the sample size is really small, and then it's just not, the design around it is not the most specific for the questions that the general public want to know. Um, what you know is in terms of an inflammatory response, if you are diabetic, if you do, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not getting a lot of sleep, um, you're raising your, your inflammation and that in itself could lead to a more severe disease state. Um, and so making sure that you are getting rest because there was recently a study about melatonin and how that can actually be useful. Although we know that melatonin is actually for rest and repair. And so just kind of, um, just, it, you know, when you're thinking about just how you take care of your body, it does make sense that you'll want to sleep. We know that prior to COVID, if you were run down, traveling a lot, not taking care of yourself, you got a cold or you got the flu. And so there is this systemic inflammatory response that is um, in part uh, due to how you take care of yourself. So if vitamin C and zinc is something that you would want to take when that to boost your immune system in general, great, do it. Because the last thing you want is 
a cold and then your immune systems run down and you get COVID or vice versa. Um, and same with vitamin D levels. I think vitamin D levels are, vitamin D in general is interesting because there's always been studies that show that from a respiratory standpoint, it can be helpful. Um, and in hospitals, they were giving vitamin D and we were, and we still are in patients in the ICU, we're still giving them um, vitamin D, vitamin C and zinc. And so whether or not the studies prove one way or the other, we're still doing it. And um, it just kind of not necessarily throwing the kitchen sink, but clearly there's some research there that would uh, connote some sort of um, some sort of protection. Yeah, I agree. What's interesting is we're seeing some cool things coming out on uh, monoclonal antibodies, polyclonal antibodies. The convalescent serum didn't work out as well, but it's probably more of, and I think you're alluding to it, when we give these things, we may know that early on in the disease process, certain therapies may be much more useful than after this inflammatory cascade, your body's freaking out, all hell's breaking loose kind of point, and you're in the ICU when nothing works, and you're right, you're throwing the kitchen sink at them. So this is still an interesting time to see what works and what doesn't work, and we're still trying to find out. But uh, I agree with the inflammatory, the baseline inflammation. If you're taking something and it's, use, and it's working for you, that's totally fine. But usually once you're in the ICU or you're really sick, uh, right. not, most of these things are not going to probably do much for you. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, um, obviously the overriding uh, thing in the news today is the vaccines from Moderna, Pfizer, and potentially Johnson coming out with a one shot. Uh, one of the questions was, and, and I guess I can sort of answer from what me and Brian chatted, but I'll let you guys more uh, elaborate on it with the uh, approval of the vaccine happening so quickly. Are you more or less nervous to take? And obviously with the FDA, I have full confidence, but I want to put this to the doctors on number one, the effectiveness has been shown 90, 95 plus on both and or the next one coming out, as well as will we need booster shots? I'm assuming there'll be some variants just like the flu. And when it says 90 to 95% effective, I'm assuming we also know that flu shot, I think 50% roughly on what the variants out there. So how can confident can the public be with these vaccines coming out so quickly? Yeah, I, I think that if I can go and then and then Brian, feel free to just kind of jump in, but um, there's a lot of concern about, oh, these vaccines were pushed out so fast. But when you look at how they were run in terms of standard clinical trials, this has actually been years of years of research that has allowed these vaccines to roll out so quickly. So they still went through all the standard processes that a normal vaccine would go through. It's just we were able to do this so quickly because there's been years of research to allow it. And so there was no like skip steps or we don't know the safety. They went through the same rigor. Um, and so I think that's one thing because a lot of people are, are very concerned about that because they think it was pushed out too quickly, but it definitely was not in the sense when you look at all the all the data that we had prior to that and then in terms of i think we will i think everybody is aware that at some point a booster shot will be needed when that is is going to be a question um just given that the new variants are constant we're seeing more and the way variants work is the faster you're transmitting the faster you're getting uh, variants to occur. So you really want to focus on lowering transmission, i.e. social distancing, hand washing, wearing masks, getting your vaccine, et cetera, um, so that variants slow down. And so it's going to be this race a little bit um, against against um, against the the 
against this virus um, until we can get to herd immunity to a specific, to, to, to get to herd immunity and then hope that herd immunity stays. So it might take a little bit longer for, us, longer for us to get to herd immunity as variants are coming out, but the idea is that it will. And then um, Pfizer 95% of Moderna 94% um, it does, we do see a really strong immunity with the first vaccine and those against, uh, the symptomatic against active disease and extremely protective, extremely protective against severe disease. Um, when the CDC first came out with their, uh, vaccine requirements, it was to get to 60%. So the fact that we have one that's 95% and 94%, we know that deaths specifically are, are 100% low uh, or 100% non-existent in these patients of what we're seeing right now due to the vaccine. Um, and so I think it's it's very promising. So 95%, 94% should give you a fair amount of confidence that you're good. Brian, yeah. I don't know. If you to yeah, I agree with you 100%. And the trials, when you look at them, um, there was no short changing. The difference between these and old vaccine trials is years ago, it would take several years, 5, 10, 15, 20 to develop the vaccine, then five years to study it and analyze it and distribute it. So the, we're talking at decades. We're so much better at a variety of things. And we're also testing a population that happens to be have a ton of the disease right in front of you. Um, you really can't do that with most other vaccines. It's really hard to find uh, this many uh, positive circulating viruses that you can uh, protect against. That's very uncommon. If you're testing in the middle of a pandemic, gave a humongous advantage and boosted the ability to make these vaccines really quickly, but not shortchanging the data analysis, the volume. I mean, you're looking at 15 to 30,000 people uh, in these arms in these trials uh, within a year. That's really good. And it just, we, uh, the fact that you're testing in the middle of, of a highly prevalent, prevalent disease gives a huge advantage. So there were no shortchanging and I trust it. Um, is anything 100% perfect? We know it's not. We know there have been a couple of reported deaths. There have been uh, some other issues that there's maybe some causation associated with some of these things. But it seems as of now, looking at millions of doses given already um, in this country, uh, you know, we're at almost 20% of the population will be vaccinated very soon. I mean, the fact of the matter is we haven't seen a lot of heavy side effects or issues that are gonna create problems. So there was no real true rushing. It feels like it's in the population and people anti-vaxxers will spread this around, but it's definitely not true. And uh, I, I'd, I'd be interested in homily, what do you say when, and I struggle with this, when a friend or a patient says, I don't trust the vaccine, I'm not getting it, I'm not an early adopter, I'm, not, I'm gonna wait. What do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I kind of just pull open the facts and it, it's so hard to to convince someone, um, especially when they're listing off all of those, like, I'm going to wait. It's like, what are you waiting for? If you're going to get it in like two months and you're not wanting it now and it's offered to you, what are you waiting for? Um, I think it does help, though. And I don't know, Brian, if you feel this way, but when my patients hear that I've gotten it, it actually and even my friends, they're like, oh, OK, because you know, clearly you're not not taking it and you take care of yourself, et cetera. And so um, I think the more awareness people have around who's gotten the vaccine, and I think that's why you're seeing these, you know, kind of awareness campaigns going around about people saying that I got it, um, can be actually really effective. I didn't know, I mean, I don't think I have that great of an influence on people, but I was very surprised to see when I, you know, shared that I did get the vaccine, how many people were like, oh, I wasn't actually going to, but now I think I will. Um, which I think can be really powerful. 
yeah, you don't realize the respect that people have for you and your position. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every day, and that's awesome that you can do that. We've had a problem here with underrepresented minorities and certain subsets of the population that have been a fearful for multiple reasons. Right. So we've had our underrepresented uh, positions go out to the community and try. I mean, we're talking as low as 10% in some populations. That's right. bad. Sure. Um, so scary. And lots of cities have gone through uh, these campaigns. But I agree with you. Showing that yourself you did it, uh, I think is wonderful. And that's everyone rags on social media. But that may be the one positive that occurred. I and I, I think that's really wonderful. Regarding herd immunity, there's some data to show that we may be close to herd immunity in certain communities. Right. I didn't even know it. So, uh, you know, there's some areas have really seen decrease in uh, transmission rates. And I think somebody alluded to it earlier that uh, the asymptomatic thing is fascinating. It's hard to study because it's hard to tell when people have the disease, yet you have to test them when they don't have symptoms. But there seems to be limited uh, asymptomatic spread after vaccination uh, people were really afraid about. I can't prove it. It's starting to slowly come out in the mRNA uh, viruses. But um, for the most part, if you've been vaccinated, um, the chance of you getting disease is really low. The chance of you getting disease and not showing symptoms is probably even lower. The chance of you having disease, not showing symptoms and having enough viral load for you to spread it is probably even lower, lower, lower. And that's what we're starting to see. And that's why I think we are probably closer to herd immunity than most people think, but we don't want to push that out to the public because people will get, you know, we made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. The CDC did, Fauci did, I did. Um, and you gotta be careful starting to spread, you know, information out before we're pretty sure. And that's why you're seeing a little reluctance in the community to start spraying a lot of stuff around. Pfizer quietly told people, hey, you don't have to go to minus four million degrees on this thing. We could probably just refrigerate this. Um, but it wasn't humongous fanfare like you thought it would be uh, because people have not, a, they're getting a little tired of this whole thing probably. And we gotta be careful the way we spread our news, but uh, we threw a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, that. And uh, Vic um, had a great question. He said he used to travel every week and he had to cancel 14 flights and he hasn't flown since. He's still nervous about being in an enclosed tube that I was circulating air for hours, especially on international flights. Are airlines safer than, say, eating in a socially distanced restaurant? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I I think there was something that came out that being on the airplane itself actually had a very low chance of COVID spread. So just, you know, just on the plane itself is very low. Um, but then it's like getting to the airport, what people's practices are at the airport. Um, I actually was on a flight and I, and when they, when they landed, um, and the seatbelt sign came off. It was like everybody was in the aisles, smushed on top of each other. And I was just like, this makes no sense. I mean, you know, like, so I think in the air, you're considered safe. But like the minute that plane landed, it was just like one person on top of the other. Like, it, it, like COVID didn't exist. And just kind of like, this is horrifying. Um, and so I don't know if I think, I don't know if I could say that it's safer than eating in an outdoor socially distanced restaurant. I, I don't know if I could say that, but, um, but I, I would say that, you know, now at least mask wearing is federally mandated in public spaces like that. And so it definitely helps. Um, you're not going to get as much pushback for people to not be safe and to not wear masks. It's more enforced. And so probably will be, um, 
a bit safer and you should feel a little bit more relaxed going into an environment like that because you're not the only one who's necessarily being responsible about um, transmitting. Yeah, it's funny. You got to use a little common sense here. I haven't flown, but I'm not that afraid. The data does show that it's limited transmissibility, but there's definitely, it's hard to study a gap of two hours or four hours during one day in a 30 day period, whether that was responsible for the transmission. So it's really hard to get good data, but we do know that the air is circulated in such a way that it's cleansed over several minutes. So the chance of transmission is low probably to get enough viral load in the air to hang out in the air and then have someone else suck it into their respiratory tract. So I think it's probably low because of the circulation that occurs, but there's definitely really smart epidemiologic contact tracers that have data to show that it definitely does occur, but it's probably, I agree, low, whether it's as safe as other areas, I don't know at the beginning, they were saying, oh, it's really hard to transmit because you're in a tube that recirculates air every two minutes. Um, but then we started seeing some people get it uh, and the only association they had was flying. So we know it does occur. I think with common sense, I agree with the mask, but more people being vaccinated. Now that I'm vaccinated, I'm not going to go running around with a cape on and go to concerts and think that I'm <laughs> in, in, immune to everything and, and nothing can immortal. But uh, I'm much more comfortable in a Same. lot of environments now that I know that I'm pretty well protected and then double protected with the mask and triple protected by keeping my distance. I mean, that's why we're starting to see this. All these things are cumulative and starting to add up now. And then probably the natural progression of this disease waning, which people always forget things come in cycles. So yeah, um, that's true. That's my two cents. No question uh, about the masks. Uh, Randy uh, had a question on double masking. Are cloth masks better than surgical, vice versa? Is there some recommendation you have for that? That's a good question. Yeah, sure. I, th I think you know, the, the double masking data just came out and they are recommending double masking. Um, it can be really hard to double mask. And so I think it's depending on where you're going and what your situation is. Um, surgical masks do provide more um, protection that they've, they've looked at than um, cloth masks, but still any mask is better than none. I mean, um, there's a great pictorial description about just wearing like any mask in comparison to none um, and you're still reducing transmission. And so um, I think the CDC came out on came out had a stance on double masking just recently. I have to pull that up, but um, it's hard. I mean, and then there was this whole thing about wearing an N95 mask. N95 masks we wear when you're in the hospital or when you're seeing a patient that's really sick. Like we used to use it, reserve it for kind of TB patients, and they're tight around your face. They are really hard to breathe in. Um, and so I think it, it use it situationally. So I don't know if you're going to fly 10 hours. Is it quite practical for you to wear a mask like that? Probably not. Um, but if double masking like or a cloth or a surgical mask over a cloth mask, that actually might be really helpful. And you're still probably preventing transmission. But Brian, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I agree. By common sense, you think one is good, two is better, and probably, but the percentage of extra layered support you're going to get by using an additional mask, I don't personally see it being that great. I mean, if you why just use the just use a surgical mask? Why even use the cloth mask? I mean, you go from ninety-five to ninety-seven percent. I don't feel is that great. I I do have N95s that I use. Uh, I use them for eight hours during my shifts at the beginning, and yeah. your face would get beat up. I agree. Those things hurt, and it's tough wearing those things and taking care of really sick patients. 
I will be honest, I just wear a regular mask right now, unless someone is spitting in my face or going, or I'm doing an aerosolized procedure, then I'll use the N95, even though that's not even, you know, probably don't even need it at that point. Now that I have a vaccine and a mask, I've seen my last shift, I saw five sick COVID patients. Uh, I feel pretty good about it. I used to go home scared, to be honest with you, scared. I'd dive, mm -hmm. run, jump in the shower thinking it's going to wipe off the virus. I mean, it's just really uh, amazing how we would leave our clothes in a certain area when we came home from shift <laughs> and we'd all be nervous. We didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, it's just a much different world. So I don't think you need additional masks. I think you're right. A standard surgical mask, which you can buy for a dollar at uh, Walgreens is acceptable. And a cloth mask, I think are kind of crappy, but they probably do block something. And it's just common sense. You put something in front. It's like when you walk by a smoker, you generally, that's what this is. This is slight, uh, it's its definitely drop uh, droplet, but it's uh, aerosolized as well. If you, like, you still smell some of the smoke around people when they blow it up, blow around you, that's how quickly you can breathe in aerosolized products. That's what you do in the viral particles. So it's common sense. The longer you're around somebody, the more virus they're producing, the less blockage you have in front of you, et cetera, et cetera. You just put yourself at a little bit more risk. But interestingly with masks too, I mean, I, I don't know if masks are really ever going to properly go away because we saw that with the flu season this year, it actually did drop significantly. And I think I've had these conversations with my colleagues. I will 100% always want my patients to come in if they think they have the flu or a cold, COVID or not at this point, wearing a mask, because why would you not if you were sick? And so I think there are some practices that will probably go forward and, and, and remain in place just because it makes sense. Um, it seems almost strange now when you think about, you know, your patients used to come in the office or you'd see them in the hospital and they would be like coughing all over you with like the flu. And then you'd go <laughs> home by taking that to your family. And like, we would not think twice about that. Um, and so I think it, it is really interesting, um, how perception is now that we know a lot more about what that can actually do, um, in terms of transmission. Cause during the, the winter season, I'm sure you see this with your residents, but I would see this with my residents too. Like a lot of the house staff would be walking around super sick because they've gotten sick in the hospital and so no one was wearing masks. I can tell you that so true. Yep. <laughs> and you still show up. So, um, yeah, I think rethinking that a little bit. Is yeah, gonna be exactly. you know, it's funny. You, we, you were a wimp if you, uh, called out from work. Totally. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like, you didn't I have leave. a fever of 102. That doesn't matter. Get in here. I'm like, okay. Uh, I hate to say it, I've worked with the flu and God forbid I gave uh, the flu to someone who didn't have an immune system, I would kill myself. But totally. I'd be better off taking care of my patients as opposed to calling the on-call person in, whatever. But it's funny, the flu numbers, uh, there are five cases of flu this year in Delaware and there were thousands last year. This is typical all over. We saw it in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, mass social distancing really works for a less transmissible agent than a COVID. The flu is a little bit easier to block as you can see, with the simple masking, it's amazing. I, you know, we'd make fun of Asian countries as a common courtesy. The Asians will wear a mask. We've seen that in the '90s and 2000s when they were cold or in public, they don't transmit. And here, we thought that you were, you look like you're robbing a bank, and people didn't want to do it. So they yeah, it's definitely like who's got the last laugh? Because I used to always think that too. Like, oh my gosh, why would you do that? And now I'm just like, geez, that was, was really smart. I'm always going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we, we see that in New York City, where if you had a mask before this, it was kind of weird. And then now if you're not wearing a mask, it's you're kind of weird. So yeah. one, one of the questions you guys uh, alluded to it before 
was, you know, some people are starting to get out, restaurants, and specifically the gym. How safe or unsafe is the gym? Is it typical of, hey, you're wearing a mask, you're cleaning up, it's fine? Or you should be leery if there's Ooh. not social distance in the gym as well? I think gyms are okay if the person next to you is not, and this used to bug me even when I would work out prior to COVID. It's like the person on the treadmill next to you is clearly like sick and has like a cough and is like coughing and spraying like everything while you're also working out right next door to you. So I think it's just like having common sense and practicing normal hygiene. Like don't go to the gym if you're super sick. Um, but the way that they've kind of employed HVACs and air filtration in, in those areas and there are adoption practices in terms of cleaning um, and sanitizing. And now people have on a schedule. I mean, I know in, in the city in San Francisco here, some gyms have moved outdoors and there's like a sign up and all of that. And when you go to hotels, same thing um, can, can do a lot in terms of making you feel fine and, and good. And exercise is great, right? Like no one's saying don't exercise. And we know that's actually really important for mental well-being and also physical well-being. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think like, just don't be that person that's like going to the gym with like, you know, the flu trying to like work on their six packs. Fine. No one wants you to do that. <laughs> it's funny. Common sense will probably went out in the long run. Um, although we don't see it from a lot of people, but you're right. You know, if you sit, don't go to the gym. You're probably... Uh, as long as there's some air circulation, I don't know if there's any good data to filters do anything, but I mean, if you have a big enough space to use some distance, I think that's definitely true. I think they should be open, but just don't use common sense. Don't be crowded around and think of the cigarette effect. If someone could blow a cigarette within five feet, keep six feet away to eight feet, probably eight to 10 feet is better than five to six. But um, I think, and you know, I hate to say it, you probably should wear a mask in the gym and I hate, you should, you know, running with a mask has got to Outside, you don't need to run with a mask. Inside, you probably at a gym need yeah. to wear it the whole time because people are going to be spraying that stuff in an enclosed area. But I like your point of they're moving some of these gyms outside, which is great. You know what that does to the virus? It disperses it all over the place and less likely to get a large enough viral load to infect an individual. So I, I agree with all your points. Yeah, I mean, uh, just one comment on that. I do go to the orange theory that you have to wear a mask uh, there. My question, I guess, uh, leading into that is in the office, when you're at these, a lot of people are obviously when you go to the office, they go because they have meetings. And a lot of people want to try and get back to the physical meetings. The one main reason, uh, uh, Hamali, you mentioned, so we're social animals, we want to be together, especially being New Yorkers, which most people on this call, we're, we're just animals. But the end of the day, we want to be together. And is, would it be better if we did maybe kept the same filters, but turned up the fans and the HVAC, if you will, to a level where you can actually feel a breeze or actually have a fan in our office and or conference rooms? Would that help? I actually don't know that question. I mean, I don't know if doing all of that is going to is going to reduce transmission so much more than already having kind of the basics there. I'm trying to think about like what we've done in our office what was nice is now that everyone's vaccinated, you can have everyone come back in. And so I think as if that's the case, then I don't know if you necessarily need to take all those measures. Um, and if you have to take all those measures, my 
again, going back to common sense, they just don't gather. Like, I think if you're, if you're that, if you're that worried about it, like take your meeting outside or something like that, maybe don't, um, don't, don't focus so much on the micro more on the macro. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, common sense has to trump everything in a lot of these uh, circumstances. And uh, this is different. You know, when we were so worried about wiping everything down and UV lights and all this other fancy stuff, which probably doesn't matter that much. I think uh, the vaccine, now that we bring up a great point that now the population starts getting vaccinated, that's the way you get to the herd immunity and you can start bringing people a little bit closer together, but you still got to maintain that distance for a while. And I think masks are going to be around unfortunately or fortunately forever. And we may see the death of other, how many colds have you seen this year? I've not right. seen a lot of viral URIs or anything at all. Yeah. Maybe because people are staying in their homes, but the masks do definitely prevent a ton of that transmission of other diseases too. Even asthma and allergies. I mean, we haven't, I mean, we've seen that like asthma attacks, uh, COPD yeah. flares, all of those things have come down, which is huge. I mean, if you have COPD or you have emphysema, you have extreme asthma, um, and you're used to coming into the hospital or you're used to coming into the ED because at least once or twice a year because it's during cold season, um, it's exacerbated. That's actually also dropped. I mean, what a significant change to your quality of life. Um, and I think that that's actually really powerful. And, and it's incredible that despite all the sadness and the sorrow that's come from this, there has been actually some other um, positive things to people's health that they've realized. And, and I think some of this will just continue going forward. I agree. It's funny. It's changed your practice. I mean, um, I've seen less respiratory diseases. I've seen a little bit more in the uh, drug and alcohol uh, uh, overdoses. I've seen a handful of that. Uh, right, increasing. Yeah. It's interesting. The dynamic has changed because of simple things like keeping distance and masking. And I'll tell you, it's funny. All uh, we talk about drug seekers or frequent flyers or people that come into the emergency department every day. Uh, a lot of these people stopped coming in during the very beginning. Yeah. And the old joke was that COVID cured people of a lot yeah. of these <laughs> But I will, I'm proud to announce they're back. Anyway. Yeah, they, they are definitely back. <laughs> <laughs> we're seeing them, but we're here to take care of everyone and we love doing it. But it's funny how a pandemic can change the, the way we look at a lot of things, how our flu season has changed, how this viruses have changed. It's, it's fascinating. And unfortunately, uh, moving forward, uh, you probably won't see huge concerts for um, a while, but uh, things will slowly get back to normal. But masks are probably going to stay forever, I'm guessing, and maybe even annual boosters like you get the flu uh, for Corona. And we should think about what mistakes we made during this session to prepare for more because this is not probably going away this is a natural reflection of us taking over the world and interacting with the environment in a way we've never done before so we may see this uh more and more over time and uh it's just gonna have to gonna have to get used to it a little bit on that note, though, in terms of boosters, it's actually fairly easy to switch out an mRNA. So if you're worried about, oh, my gosh, is this going to be another year and how are they going to figure it out? Once the the kind of um, 
the vector for a vaccine has been built, it's mainly just kind of how we're doing for the flu season. You sequence it out and you understand, and then you can kind of just switch the mRNA, um, which is actually really exciting. So like these booster shots to get them, um, it's not going to be a big production and, and there shouldn't be a ton of fear around it. If you've got the first one, then thinking, I don't need the booster. I'm going to wait and doesn't really make any sense. Like you should just get the booster at that point because you already did the first round. You know, you bring up a great point of why people think we rush these things because they're so new. They're new uh, to the public, but they have been studied for a long time. And it's like making boosters. We're testing booster shots is really because we, we're going to do the same thing again is find out what the most common new mutation variants are. Take that spike protein, comes it in an envelope and inject it in people's muscles and get it taken up by the cells so you can make the protein and your body can remember it. So that's probably, you're right. I think that's the way it's going to be and it won't be as complicated. And hopefully people will calm down that this isn't, you know, Star Trek science that we're rushing through, that it's reality that we're making boosters and it's going fairly well and deal with it. I mean, the anti-vaxxers are always going to be there, but they have this stronghold on five to 10% of the population that's going to just continually question everything we do and try to make, you know, us look bad, I guess. Interestingly, you know, with some of my anti-vax patients, they were the first ones to call to be like, when can I get this vaccine? Which oh. I find very interesting and very ironic. And so I always kind of take the, I always tell, you know, my other patients, like, oh, one of my friends said they weren't going to. I'm like, I bet you your friend was one of the first people that called to be like, <laughs> when can I get that? Because it's, it's astonishing. Um, so don't leave everything you hear from, you know, conspiracies, conspiracy theorists about the fact that they're not going to, because I was surprised how many, and they, they, you know, don't qualify any of the current tiers, but they are the ones like knocking on people's doors being like, when can I get this? They could be a great marketing tool for you. I think. Yeah. I think it's very convenient. Um, and so, yeah. It's, um, they got, were so scared. I think they were scared and they didn't know what to do. And you know what, take advantage of it and use them to your, uh, maybe they'll think that way of other things, but these are the people that say that all these vaccines cause autism, this, that. Uh, definitely not true, but it's good to see you get some on board. I love it. So we got one quick, uh, uh, we're at 10.56, a question. Uh, Ambar had a great question on, can you get COVID through your eyes? Obviously, people wearing the, the shields, uh, if the air around you has a high viral load and not necessarily by touching them, can you obviously absorb it through the eyes? It's a mucous membrane. Someone like coughs in your eyes, like, you know, it's possible the risk of transmission is fairly low, but it's still, I mean, that's why we were wearing eye shields and all that stuff. Cause it, your, your nose is a mucous membrane. It's why we swab your nose. Um, and so anything like that, that could potentially, um, could, could, um, so you just want to be careful. And we know that with all viruses, it's why you get pink eye and what's why you get adenovirus and all those types of things. You touch your eye, you touch the surface, you touch your eye and, and it can enter in. So, yeah, yes, we're I think. required to have uh, eye coverings. A shield's not good enough because the virus can get around it. But to right. get a big enough viral load through the eye is probably uncommon, to be honest with sure. you, because you're not sucking it like you are in the nose yep. and the mouth. But you're, I, we have to wear these gla approved glasses just because we're around so much virus. And there's definitely... Uh, ways to get through that mucous membrane, but uh, not very high. So, yeah. I mean, just you keep your distance, but I, it's a great question though. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, we're hitting towards the end and, and I, if I could, I mean, I don't know, I know people were writing questions. So I'll, 
I'm going to try and be daring and Lee. And if somebody wants to unmute themselves, see your face, you can even ask a live question to the doctors, of course. Uh, I'll give a few seconds if, you, if somebody wants to do that now. We've had some really good, uh, really good banter here. I mean, the end of the day is people, you know, they don't know. And, uh, you know, they, people, they want to look for the easy answers. So we appreciate you guys coming on. I mean, we know you, how busy you guys are. And it's so informative to, to learn facts from fiction, especially when it becomes, when it's medical and especially when it's COVID because it's in everybody's face right now. So uh, we have a couple of minutes if you want to close up, but uh, really before anything, thank you both so much and thank everybody for joining us. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much for having me. This was really fun, Brian. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and Craig and thanks, it's great. Yeah, Molly, that was great. great. We could do this for hours. And, I know. Uh, <laughs> Next topic. We'll just, yeah, we'll just uh, put everybody on mute. They can listen to us BS the whole time. <laughs> we'll have fun. And we'll solve all the world's problems. But I think it's yeah. a fascinating time to live in. Um, we're in a really cool position to hopefully educate the public, public displace uh, some of those fears and myths that are definitely out there. Tell people to calm down on the social media, get out and actually do some physical activity. I think it's fun. You know, just having that, uh, you know, get your life in order. And, you know, I see a lot of patients coming in depressed, et cetera. Um, it's depressing. It's scary. It's anxiety provoking. It's fear of the unknown. But, um, you know, you use your family, your loved ones, uh, us, uh, and uh, life is short. And, uh, you know, when I see people that are, really young dying around me i go home and think about you know what i'm thank god i'm alive and uh i'm just trying to be happy every day yeah if you made it to this year you're not doing badly That's i think right. like the the takeaway agree agree great point and uh, again thank everyone for making time and uh uh Hamali and brian thank you both so much for taking time out of your day for us really appreciate it Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone. All the best. Year, we'll do another one. Absolutely. <laughs> Take, Take care. care. Bye.